Richard Lister is an attorney who specializes in human rights and labor law. Born in Durban in 1953, he has lived there most of his life, except for brief periods when he moved abroad to Australia and England to avoid conscription. He and his colleague, the late Dr. Kozlem Gojo, ran the TRC office in KwaZulu-Natal, a region that stood apart because of the particular nature of the violence spawned by apartheid. It was also extremely poignant and extremely sad and horrifying. I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen a, a head with a hole in it. And it's so stark because, of course, there was no flesh on the, on the skeleton at all. That had long, long disappeared. Of the 21,000 corroborated statements made by victims to the TRC, nearly half came from KwaZulu-Natal. The TRC received nearly 5,000 reports of politically motivated killings in the province during the period in its purview. But in fact, independent monitoring groups estimated the number of political assassinations to have been four times this number. Most of these related to the violent conflict from the mid-80s right up until the first democratic elections between supporters aligned with the United Democratic Front and later the ANC on the one hand and the Inkata Freedom Party on the other. Mostly the IFP did not cooperate with the commission, at first rejecting it outright and then later, after the TRC extended the deadline for submissions, saying it would not oppose its members coming forward. Still relatively few did. The other peculiarity was that most of the human rights violations in the last years of apartheid were attributed not to the police or security forces as in other provinces, but to Inkata, to which about 4,000 deaths were attributed, although the UDF-ANC were named as perpetrators in cases involving about 1,000 deaths. To find the truth after years of internecine conflict is a great challenge, as Lister was to discover. I met him in his Durban home and he told me he was surprised to have even been appointed because he was so blunt in his interview before the nominating panel. One of its members, Bishop Peter Storey, approached him afterwards. And he said that most of the people that he had interviewed were best charlatans and worst thugs. <laughs> because he'd asked several candidates what they would do if they came upon an, an incident where the exposure of the truth would lead to perhaps destabilizing the country. Would they, would they put it out there on the public platform? Would they withhold it? in the interests of not destabilizing the country. And they all said, no, they would definitely hold it back. What and, did you say? And I said, of course I would, I would, <laughs> I would uh, expose it or bring it out or put it out there. Um, and I said, I remember saying, this is, this is not a tr half-truth commission, it's a truth commission. <laughs> and and, and um, that's one of the areas where, where, which has made me very disillusioned, the fact that so many people lied. Who, I asked? Everywhere. Everywhere, people just lied. People in amnesty applications, mostly that people tried to limit the damage, which I suppose is understandable. They said what they said, basically what the investigators had found out about them, which was, which they could hardly run away from. There were very few people who just said, "I'm just going to come up here. No one knows who I am or what I did, but I'm just going to come up here for the sake of telling the truth and blurted out." I think there were so few people who did that. People responded largely in amnesty when they were cornered in a sense, you know, or they were wanted to get out of prison. But I think people just lied. The Commission's report details evidence of collaboration between the security forces and local Inkata leaders. 
One example was the massacre at Trust Feeds, a rural village in the Natal Midlands where 11 people were gunned down at a night vigil in what emerged to be a case of mistaken identity. The commanding officer of the local police station, Brian Mitchell, who had ordered the killing, was the first officer convicted of murder under the old regime. Mitchell was later given amnesty, but the details of the environment in which the killing took place were telling. Speaking of another rural area, a former special constable from the KwaZulu Homeland Police Force told the commission how they would go on foot patrols accompanied by the riot police. When they came across UDF members, they assaulted them and told them to join Inkata. Sometimes they shot people and reported this to the commander of the riot police. They were instructed to continue the killing, he said. In another case, an IFP member and former security policeman, Philip Powell, set up a paramilitary training camp for Inkata members near the Mkuzi Game Reserve in northern Natal. Lister is angry that no politicians were held accountable for a wave of violence that engulfed the province and claimed thousands of victims, including hundreds of children. IFP leader Chief Mangasutu Butelezi came before the commission to give his version of events in the same way FW declared He told the commission that the root of the conflict between the ANC and the IFP, who had once been allies, lay in a fundamentally different approach to strategies to liberate the country. He also said IFP members who had committed violence were acting on their own accord and without instructions. The commission had a different view. In its amnesty report, it said evidence showed the IFP had participated in state-sponsored violence and had, quote, sought and received training and arms from the security forces which assisted it in forming death squads, unquote. He knew everything about them, the documents. I mean, I've got them here in boxes. He knew everything. He attended meetings with um, with the security police, with Magnus Milan, <clears throat> and the, the minutes of those meetings are available, available where... The minute takers transcribe almost verbatim what was said at those meetings. Did anyone apply for amnesty for the hit squads that were created at the time? Only the guys who were in jail. Only the guys who were in jail. Romeo Mbambo was one. He applied for amnesty for 56 incidents of violence that resulted in more than 100 deaths in the Eskaweni area near Richards Bay. In his amnesty application, he admitted to legal counsel for the IFP that he had sometimes been paid extra for the killings. He was employed as a detective constable at the time for the KwaZulu police. Two of his victims were fellow police officers, one of whom he suspected was an ANC sympathiser, the other who had arranged a search of his house for illegal weapons. His murders were so so blatant, so frightening that even you know, prior to nineteen ninety four he was he was charged and and convicted of murder and he was sent to prison. Mbamba got amnesty for the murders. A newspaper report in 2010 describes him as a wealthy businessman who provides VIP protection. He is regarded as a sought-after A-lister on the Durban social scene, said the paper. He's the man who gets invited to the ANC functions and he gets tenders and things like that. And he's a mass murderer. Um, So, yeah, no one who just applied just because they did it out of a sense of common human decency they just um, they did it typically because you know the evidence against them was overwhelming or that they were in jail and they wanted to get out does he agree with the view put by fellow commissioner Dumisa and Sebeza that the prosecuting authorities were under political pressure not to pursue prosecutions against apartheid era perpetrators absolutely without a doubt yeah I mean because the prosecuting authority at that stage was far more independent than it is now um, and we very much hoped and believed that there would be prosecutions. I mean, that was one of the 
One of the aims and purposes of the Human Rights Violations Committee was to uncover human rights violations, to investigate them, and to use a sort of a carrot and a stick approach to, to approach perpetrators, to say, listen, we've investigated, we know what, what you did, and if you don't apply for amnesty, because there was a pressure to make all three committees work, and, and we were encouraged to use information that we had to, to get people to apply for amnesty, hoping that you know, a public expression of the truth would bring about reconciliation, um, and that those people who declined to apply for amnesty would then be prosecuted. And that's exactly what the Act said, you know, that you have an opportunity, a window to apply for this, and you will be, all criminal and civil liability will be, the slate will be wiped clean, and then, but those who don't face the real risk and threat of prosecution. But of course, that applies across the board. And the ANC, as you as you probably remember, was extremely angry um, with our final report, because it uh, identified certain human rights violations as having taken place under the, the watch of the ANC in the camps and elsewhere, and and named certain perpetrators, I mean a handful, but it basically said they were also guilty of human rights violations. And we had the, in the ignominious position where they brought and attempted an interdict to prevent us from presenting the the report to Mandela. The interdict failed, but Lister feels the ANC simply never forgave the TRC. An express part of the report of the Commission going forward was that people who didn't apply for amnesty, and in respect of whom there was significant evidence enough to support a prosecution, that that should happen. And of course we had hoped that that most of those people would have been historically, you know, people from the police and the military and right-wing vigilante groups, but there were also a significant number of people, um, A, from Encarta, and B, from the PAC and the ANC, to a lesser extent, um, who deserved to be prosecuted. And they didn't want to rock that boat, particularly here in Natal. The IFP had just become the first you know, elected majority party here in KZN. And, and there was a feeling, what they put out in the media was, Oh, prosecution will interfere with the process of uh, reconciliation, but it wasn't that. It was that people were afraid that, the, you know, people in high places were going to be fingered and possibly prosecuted, which would have been very embarrassing. Did the failure to hold people to account then have anything to do with the political texture of the country today? I ask him. Yes, I do. I in, do. In what way? Well, I think that there are many people who ought to have been prosecuted who went into government, and. Those tend to be people who are powerful personalities, you know, alpha characters. Um, that's why they were, in a sense, during those days, um, at the forefront of the, that particular aspect of the struggle and um, and um, reckless enough to do things like commit political murders. You know, it takes it takes um, it takes nerve to do that, even though it's a very negative form of nerve. But, and these people who tended to do that are very, very dominant, powerful alpha males, you know. And they found themselves in positions of power in government. And there was just a sense of, you know, guys, we can do pretty much what we want to do here. We can close this place down. We can get rid of people. We can. So I think that's, that's infected the body politic, if you like, you know that sort of attitude which is really an antithesis to what the ANC used to stand for. And I think that's just broadened out into a general sense of non-accountability, corruption, 
Even today in KwaZulu-Natal, there have been several political assassinations in the run-up to the local government elections. Yes, of course, yes, of course. But, you know, in a sense, that's people are desperate to get onto the lists, you know, and uh, because the lists means goodies, it means money, it means tenders, it means opportunity to enhance yourself personally, financially. Just two months ago, two Etekweni councillors and a hired gunman were convicted of the murder of Tulisile Maureen Dlovu, a leader of the Abatlali Basem Jondolo group. The two councillors, says Lister, are still getting paid their salaries. But if the culture of accountability may not have been as strong as the TRC would have liked, what did work about it, I asked. I think the concept of the public hearings was a wonderful thing. I really think that that changed people's views and minds. Uh, I don't want to overstate it, you know, this people go on about the mighty cathartic experience that people have on stage and they weep and it changes them forever. Well, it doesn't, I don't think it does really. People cry easily about sad things, it doesn't change them forever. But still, I think for the populace at large, you know, who watched those things, it was something that they've never, ever, ever seen before. They've never seen people like that, poor people, telling a terrible, sad story and being... Um, Cosseted and comforted by state authorities, black and white, being believed and being supported. And, uh, you know, for the first time, perhaps in those people's lives, their stories became truth, even if some of them did exaggerate a bit, but they became the truth. It, it was very powerful. And I think for those white people who did watch it and who were prepared to be open about it, it had, a, it had an effect on them. White people in the country are generally hidden away from the effects of apartheid, and in the later years, most of the violations were hidden from them, he says. This process exposed them to truth. It sort of diminished their, their hubris, their arrogance, their confidence, and it helped the transitional process. People who, were, who did watch that, white people who were open to it, they had you know, feelings other than feelings of anger and resentment against the new government. Some of them were horrified and shocked, I think. What would he say to a new generation who questioned the efficacy of the TRC, who even call it a sellout? Lister says he takes their point to some extent. The Truth Commission raised expectations that could never have been met. Reconciliation, substantial reparations, justice for victims, humiliation for perpetrators who didn't confess, institutional reform. But of course, it, it couldn't have hoped to have achieved half of those things. And it fell short on on almost every one. Um, but still, it's better that it happened than it, that it didn't happen. Um, so I would certainly not agree with their view that it was a sellout or that, that we sold the country out at all. One of the TRC's recommendations for institutional reform was that an independent prosecuting authority report to the Attorney General. Another was on public policing. And some of them happened and then they were quickly shut down as soon as they started exercising an independent um, approach to prosecution. So there wasn't institutional reform. And, and basically, I think, unrealistically, people just thought this is going to help usher in a new era for poor black people. Well, it didn't. You know, We live in a global economy and things have gone bad globally and we have a corrupt government that basically laughs at poor people. Um, you know, Zuma is, is just the worst possible face of the ANC. There's no one, I think, who even comes close to to him, just how utterly appalling he is, how shockingly dishonest, how corrupt and awful he is. And and I think um, 
he's tainted, you know, he's tainted the whole country, the body politic, with, with that sort of attitude. And so people, young people like that, are angry. You know, where, I mean, where do they get 40 grand to put up to pay for their fees at university? Or 20 grand? How does one then begin to remake the country, I ask, to have a semblance of the hope and social cohesion that existed in the immediate post-94 era? All I know is that what's currently happening militates against that so fundamentally because, as I said earlier, you know, the, the flaunting of immoral public values, the dishonesty, the lying, the corruption, the theft, is, I think, basically makes people generally feel disillusioned and it engenders an attitude, well, God's sake, the centre's not holding together, I may as well get on this bandwagon too. I mean, I've, honestly, I've spoken to people who just think, well, I'd be a fool not to, actually. Yes, there is corruption. It's huge. There are loopholes everywhere, and, and I'm just going to lose out if I don't jump onto this bandwagon. Um, and that's it. It just goes back to the whole thing about people telling the truth. It's the power of the truth really is, is so powerful and so fundamental and goes way, way beyond you know, our particular social experiment in this country. It's... it's um, you know, if you look at other countries which have had conflict in the, in the way that we have. You know, I was, I was reading something recently about Turkey and the, the massacre of genocide of the Armenians. Um, you know, where hundreds of thousands of Armenian Turkish residents, Turkish citizens who happened to be of the Armenian ethnic group, after the war were systematically massacred in the most terrifying fashion, you know, by the hundreds of thousands. And to the extent that it is now a, it's a criminal offence in Turkey to espouse a view which says that there was Armenian genocide. The Turkish government simply is in a state of such utter and fundamental denial about it. And it has, it's, it's created legislation which says that if you take the view publicly through a newspaper or through a public stage, and put forward the view that the Turkish government committed genocide on the Armenians, you can get locked up for it. Um, And basically what Armenians want is for people to tell the truth. There's nothing you can do about it now, but just tell the truth. Tell the world what happened to us. And that is absolutely fundamental. As in Germany after the war, those who didn't get hanged after the Nuremberg trials were those who admitted what happened. You see it everywhere. You know, you see it in... I spoke to people in the course of my work in Peru, in Colombia, and in Serbia about, about the need for a truth commission when I was invited there after the commission. And basically what they said is, all we want is for people to tell the truth. So did people in Argentina, he says. They wanted military officers to tell them what happened when they dropped their children or relatives out of helicopters into the sea. But in many of the Latin American countries, the truth commissions were just whitewashers, he says. And in Argentina, there was a blanket amnesty for the military. In comparison, South Africa's truth commission was much better. Ours was the mother and father of all truth commissions. We, we did much, much better than them. Chile, Argentina and Honduras... And that's, that's basically what people want. You know, when I, when I spent time in, in Peru, I was an advisor to the Peruvian Truth Commission. And, I mean, some of the things that went on there make human rights violations here look very mild, you know. The Peruvian Truth Commission investigated the conflict of the country in the 80s and 90s when the military and rebel groups, including Shining Path, killed more than 69,000 people between them, most of them peasants. I travelled around with the Truth Commission there. And basically that was, it was the same thing. People just wanted people to own up and say, we did it, and this is why we did it. 
And that's what was so so missing in the R-Truth Commission, that people lied their way, their way through the commission. In contrast, the public show of remorse has a very powerful effect, he says. Eugene de Kock's confessions were one example. He was admittedly in a position of weakness, having been jailed for life. But his confessions and apologies had a deep effect on many people. And I think if you read so many stories of people who attended Amnesty applications, they said that's all what, that we want them to say, is, is that we want them to tell us what happened, and we want to hear them say that they are, are sorry. So I think that the, the telling of the truth is far more powerful than we, than we understand. And people basically just benefit very, very positively and powerfully from a public telling of the truth. But I think so many people lied. The police lied, the military lied. In this province particularly, the IFP just lied wholesale. You know, they were part and parcel of the state security machinery with the security police, with the military, perpetrating terrible murders, and they lied. Did you know that at the time? Of course. Of course we knew it at the time, yeah. And what could you do? We could, well, what we, what we wanted to do was to, instead of issuing an invitation to the IFP to give their view, like the business was invited and, the, you know, um, the National Party was invited... We also had powers of subpoena where you could bring a person in and subject them in terms of the Section 29 interviews to very, very lengthy interrogations. But that's one area where we failed with the Commission because a decision was taken. The majority of the Commission decided that it would it was just too dangerous a thing to do. We had just come through this terrible situation where the IFP in this province had held the IEC to ransom, the Independent Electoral Commission, they only were persuaded at the very last minute to join the election to the extent that when they did join, new ballot papers had to be printed with Butelezi's face stuck on at the bottom. The IFP, he says, was afraid of losing its regional power after an election. As it happened, IFP leader Mangasutu Butelezi became Premier of KZN in a coalition provincial government. The TRC's experience in KwaZulu-Natal was intense. It was here that the first body of a person abducted and killed by the security police was exhumed. Lister was there. Pila Ndandwe was a young ANC courier based in Swaziland who was responsible for infiltrating ANC cadres into the province and whom police also believed gave orders for the killing of a Durban security branch policeman. In 1988, five security policemen abducted her from Swaziland and took her to a so-called safe house in Elanskop outside Pietermaritzburg. Lacking evidence on which to prosecute her, the TRC reports, the police decided to kill her and bury her there. TRC investigators Gail Wannenberg and Deborah Quinn led the team to her body in an event that captured the nation. Lister was there and I asked him to describe how they discovered where she was buried. It was through a classic carrot and stick approach, he says. The TRC investigating team identified when she had been abducted and who was responsible and pushed those people to apply for amnesty in return for full disclosure. They were present there. The security police who they shot were, her, they were there. Not when the digging was done. They were there when the, the day before, the morning before uh, the digging was done. They said, this is where we took her. And they took her to a safe house or a house which was used by the security branch in that area, which is just outside Peter Maritzburg. And it, it was used for, I don't know, training purposes. It was used for get-togethers. It was used for briars. It was used for, I think... Another one of the of these houses was even used where senior police could take their families for the weekend and go and relax and 
have more briars and <laughs> but um, this particular one was used to take not only this young woman, Pila Ndwandwe, but many other people. Pila Ndwandwe was in her late 20s at the time. Lister has boards full of photographs he took. The house has since fallen into disrepair. It no longer has a roof. The area was overgrown, but the police knew vaguely where they had buried her. They said, listen, if you dig here, you will find her. So what the exhumation team did with assistance from the wonderful canine police unit, SAP unit, is that they identified where the graves, and they did it in a very methodical way. They cleared the area of the bush, um, cut down some of the saplings, and they, these guys went around with long, very heavy poles which were pointed at the bottom, and they just pushed them into the ground. These, they're huge, they look like heavy steel lances. And whenever the ground gave way, indicated that the soil beneath the point of the lance, so-called, was had been dislodged at some earlier stage because ground normally, you know, in its natural state is packed hard from the rain and then the sun and it's, as you know, from, you know, trying to dig a hole in the felt, it's rock hard. But if that sand has been, has been turned over and loosened and dug, it's, it's much, much softer than the, the natural surface. So whenever these, these long, heavy spikes gave way and went into the ground, they knew that there'd been disturbance of the ground. He taps his fingers on the table to demonstrate. And then after this team of people, several efforts, they, they identified you know, a rectangle or a square. And I think the first couple they dug up was just full of beer tins and packets and general rubbish, which you know the police had generated. As it turned out, three people had been secretly killed and buried by these security police. With each one, basically, once they located it as a hole in the ground, they dug with heavy shovels because we were told by the policemen that they'd buried them at least a metre under the ground. And so, the, you know, you could sort of dig away without fear of breaking a bone or a skull for the first metre or so. And then they resorted to smaller spades and then they brought a dog in and they told us that they'd put lime on the bodies to make them dissolve quicker. And so the police dog was given a sack with lime in it to smell and then his trainer said to him go and look for lime and this dog just went completely mad um, just digging and digging and digging and we knew that there was lime down there and then the pathologist went in with a spade he then dug because he was told that the person had pillar and one had been buried kneeling in the grave because they couldn't be bothered to dig a long grave because it would have taken more digging and they dug themselves because it was so secret and so private. They'd kept her there for three days, held her naked in this little sort of concrete enclosure. She didn't tell them what they wanted her to tell her. And then at the end of the three days, they simply executed her by shooting her in the top of the head. And that's what the pathologist found. He dug with his spade and he hit something. And then he cleared it with the spade round and there, just revealed in the sand, was a, was a, a skull. With a, with a large hole in the top of the head. How did you feel when you first saw that? There were all sorts of emotions. I mean, we, it was the first exhumation in the Truth Commission. There was a sense of, powerful sense of, this is what we came here to do. This is what we came, we've, we've, we've found this, this woman, you know. So there's a sense of having achieved something, in a sense, wonderful, from an operational point of view. But it was also extremely poignant and extremely sad and horrifying. I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen a, a head with a hole in it. 
and it's so stark because of course there was no flesh on the on the skeleton at all that had long long disappeared and as you can see from the picture the, the bullet hole is very very clearly exposed yeah and so then he basically very methodically dug the rest of the him and his assistants dug the skeleton out bit by bit and of course the ligaments had all dissolved and disappeared so it was just a series of bones and he didn't stop until he and you can see from the picture where the where the skeleton is laid out on a white tablecloth on the table which we put next to the grave every didn't stop until every single digit and metacarpal was was assembled um, and then the whole thing was put into a wrapped up in canvas and put into a body bag and taken away by the police to the to the mortuary and and after that the family was told one picture shows a gloved pathologist holding a skull with a clean black hole in the top of the head another shows the skeleton of a seemingly small human laid out on a white tablecloth as though it were an archaeological exhibit the policemen responsible for the killings and burials got amnesty it was they who also led the trc to the burial sites they settled there, that's where they are, that's where we buried them, yeah. The team continues that work today under Madeleine Fullard, providing closure for families whose loved ones have been missing for years. It's one of the most powerful legacies of the Truth Commission, says Lister. Is there any point, I ask him, in establishing a reconciliation project in the country that tackles some of the unfinished business of the TRC? You know, I think the time for that was then. You know, it's so difficult now to, to embark on something like that without it being suggested that you're doing it for opportunistic or cynical reasons. There was a sense of hope and optimism then, which there isn't now. And, you know, certainly institutional reform is, is something which can always happen. Um, but, you know, I'm not holding my breath on that one um, in the current climate. But he says there's still scope for symbolic reparation. He cites the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., which lists the names of the more than 58,000 Americans who died during that war. This is the most powerful thing, and it draws tens of thousands of members of families of people who died there, and every single name of every person who died in Vietnam, even if you know you support the war, you don't. The fact that a young boy died there means everything to that boy's family or his parents or his wife. And people go there in their thousands every year and pay respect and do rubbings of their family member's name on the wall and take it away with them. And it's an extremely powerful thing. And we just saw virtually nothing. Why could the same thing not be done here, I ask? The moment was then, but and you can do it now. But, you know, another spectacular failure of the, not of the commission, but of the politicians who who were supposed to implement the recommendations of the commission, they just didn't want much to do with it. They didn't like it because it, it fingered them, the ANC, pitifully few, you know, as perpetrators. And I think they just set their hearts against it, actually. Symbolic reparation, he says, is very important in a country that is resolving conflict, things that allow people to remember. Statues are very powerful things, I think so. Um, walls of remembrance, um, special places where people can go to. But... As I say, you know, currently it's just not on the agenda. Symbolic reparation is a new BMW now. That was Richard Lister, interviewed in Durban on the 21st of June 2016. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town, produced by Jean-Michel, with thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzenina.